numbers. If you're anything like me, you went to law school, so you would never have to do math again. However, uh, we want to get paid. So we need to understand numbers, at least in some stand, standpoint. Otherwise, we need to hire people who are great with numbers, which is why I am super excited to have my two guests today, Andy and Meredith. They are the bookkeepers who've got your back and your front of house and your bottom line, but they don't do taxes. They collaborate with your CPA and tax attorney for that. And we're going to go into that in a little bit of detail. Really, we're here to talk about the fact that they do so much of this from the standpoint of building the system to get the right financial stuff together. So we're talking about the seven steps to super systems. Ladies, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. I don't know what order you want to go in, but we got to go a little bit deeper on your bio because both of you have such an interesting background getting into all this. So whomever wants to go first, I will leave it up to you all. I, I will hop in per, per the usual. Um, I would say the easiest way to explain how we are where we are in business today is Andy and I met individually having our own businesses. Um, we both had a very nuanced specialty background in system and process builds um, from two very different aspects of life. Hers was in her family. They had lived and died by this philosophy and mine was from my work experience um, as an engineer and I got told oh you're going through this training because our business is going to be transformed into this we met and uh, had our own businesses and we're like we should make a podcast about our philosophy because all of our um, friends in business were struggling with exactly the system and process stuff that we knew and we were operating our businesses that way so we knew it could be successful and that morphed from a podcast to us joining up in business uh, because people are either passionate or pissed off. They don't like to do the things that are nuanced, you know, at back of house. And um, so here we are today. <laughs> there we go. Andy, what do you want to add? Uh, yeah. So Meredith Studdard studied TPS and is a Six Sigma black belt. And I studied under the discipline of Dr. W. Edwards Deming. And both of them are pretty complementary to each other. And so that's in case people want to look into that. Those are the two schools of thought, TPS and Deming. Um, my background is, it, is as a TPS social worker. Is, isn't that the report from Office Space? Is it the TPS yes, report? It is, but not okay. the same TPS. This is Toyota production system. <laughs> so when people wind back the clock and they think about how TPS, or sorry, how Toyota grabbed so, so much market share and had such a brand recognition for quality, TPS is the underpinning for all of that. And that's based off of Kaizen, right? Yeah. Uh, Kaizen that's a component. Part of it. Gotcha. Key component, yeah. And something we're going to talk about later. All yeah. right. So, yeah. So for my component, I went to school, became a social worker, but my entrepreneurial family had taught me all about Deming. So I brought home special needs dog, needed to figure out how to stay home, started a business. Meredith and I joined forces and we really pruned our scope down and solidified into really meaningful bookkeeping that has a complement of tech automation and integration. We want to make sure your numbers are clean, make sure you can make actionable decisions on those numbers and that you understand what all that does for you. And we want to make sure that your technology is feeding into that in a way that you don't have to click all the buttons. So if we can get your accounting and your technology to play well together, it saves a lot of administrative burden. So that's that's my spiel on that. And our team, I will put a plug, our team is fabulous. We love taking care of people. So that's that's our approach for all of it. 
Awesome. All right. So we're going to dive into our uh, seven steps to building super systems. But before that, I want to talk about our last episode. Here's where we'll insert the information about the last episode when we hammer all that stuff out. All right. And so I wish I was smart enough to have done this intentionally, but I'm reading Cal Newport's World Without Email, um, which is a book that goes into a lot of what we're going to talk about today. One of the things he talks about that I want to share with literally everybody because it blew my mind. He talks about the 30x rule and he references somebody else. I'm sorry for not giving this person credit, but I don't remember their name. In essence, if you can train somebody in 30 times or less than it takes you to do it once, it is worth you making the training opportunity. And so from an automation standpoint, if you're going to do something 30 times or more, you should automate it. And I've never seen it laid out that simplistically, um, but I thought that was such a cool way to get into talking about the system, talking about the process, talking about the automation. I don't know if you all have a pushback or agreement with that number. I very much agree with that um, short term. But one of the things that I really think is very valuable for business owners is uh, you will always limit yourself by the amount of work that you are doing within your business. So yes, 30 iterations, absolutely. But I think there is value in trying to create a system around absolutely everything. So you can go, all right, this runs without me. What else can I do? Um, and that really makes you limitless. So if you are new to system building, absolutely, that's a fabulous place to start. And then I would just start walking it back. Am I going to have to do this 20 times? Am I going to have to do it 10 times? Am I going to have to do it once a year and start delegating those and building systems around them? Um, but 30 is a fabulous number to start with. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I was like, I've never seen it put that way, but it makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I think from a law perspective, it's important for people to realize they learned it somehow. So if you're doing something on a regular basis, a lot of times what I hear from lawyers is, well, it's all in my head. I'm the magic sauce. It's all in my head. You were not always a lawyer. Somebody taught you how to make those decisions. Let's figure out how to pull out that decision-making tree and get it on paper. Yeah. So 30 is a great number. And I think that that answers for some, some folks listening, like, the magic sauce is in your brain, but you had to learn how to get there somehow. And it can be teased out if you have folks that are helping you do that. Well, and, you know, God forbid you want to take vacation or hire somebody else or not, you know, or scale above your ability to handle every single thing on every single case. Um, No, I mean, I'm I'm with you. Right. Or, you know, sleep is helpful. It's another, another great benefit. You get to actually sleep enough. (laughs) Well, and even if, and okay, and, and even if there is truly the magic sauce, right? Like you could build a system that leads the right information into the moment of magic and leads the right information out of it. So, you know, I hear from lawyers all the time, like when it comes to a motion to dismiss or the response to it, they have to be doing it because it's very specific. Sure, but you can have a template. You can have, you know, the 10 or, or 15 or 30 most common case law that applies to it. You can send somebody else on a research project on specific issues for that case, you can car, you know, you have somebody else carve out the time in your calendar to make sure that it's done in a timely manner. You can then, you know, have a system afterwards to get it filed, to get it set for a hearing, to go through all those things. So even if there truly is like that magic moment, you can standardize the lead in and lead out. Yeah, it's a great point. And there really, truly there is. If somebody is a great lawyer, there's an art to it and it's hard to duplicate that, but it, it gives them the ability to be successful. And focus on that magic. Totally. 
All right. So um, anything else we want to talk about before we dive into our seven steps to super secret, super systems? I do have one rule. Um, yeah. That up when talking about systems, and I think this is very difficult for people, uh, and that is always include your team, period. You are not making systems in a box, and systems are not to replace people. They're to help people grow into better positions. And I could do a whole spiel about this, but what I will say is start to finish, unless it is something you do autonomously from others, you should involve the people who do the system or will be doing the system if that's possible for you. Totally. Well, cause like, look, uh, I'm not the most brilliant person about everything in the entire history of the world. So I expect other people one to have better insight, but even, or a, a different perspective. And, but also just the fact of the buy-in will make the system so much easier to implement. Just the fact that they feel like they were heard or they were ideally were actually heard on it will be so much easier than like, all right, this is how we do it. And this is how we're always going to do it. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And if you're ready, I'll hop right in. Let's do it. So I'm going to do a, a high level overview of all of the steps. And then I'm going to explain each one, if that's okay with you. And I'm going to call on Andy for stories for each one as well. Um, You're making my job easy. <laughs> uh, so the first part of a system build is determining your boundary. And I think that is one of the most overlooked portions of a system build. And it's at any level. It can be your whole system. It can be a subsystem or a single process. Because what happens is you'll say, okay, we're going to talk about um, how to start a car. And so you're like, okay, well, you know, that's obvious. It's when you're in the car and you go to crank the car and it's like, well, is that really the case? Are the keys always in the car ready for you to crank it? Or do you have to go and get the keys somewhere? Does the system start at the beginning of finding the keys? Um, so having that really argument is probably the right way to say it of where the system has to begin so you can have a good starting and stopping and disclude things that don't matter in that instance is very critical otherwise you're going to chase your tail for a while so that's step one um, then we have checklist mrca reduce ambiguity pre-specifications and embedded tests value add versus non-value add and Kaizen. So I'm gonna read through those one more time and put a number with each one. So one is determine the boundary. Number two is create a checklist. Number three is go through MRCA. Number four is reduce ambiguity. Number five is pre-specifications and embedded tests. Number six is determine what is value add versus non-value add. And the seventh is Kaizen. So I feel like I've already exhausted point number one just determine where you start and where you end. If you talk to a tech person, they're going to call this uh, inputs and outputs, um, but it's always critical to have that component. The second part is, I think the thing that everybody assumes is what a system build really is, and that's the checklist. And Hold on, before we jump into the checklist, I just want to give the, I want to give my favorite stupid example. Um, so shout out to Kristen David from Upleveling Your Business. She did a whole thing on making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So from the standpoint of setting the boundary, like, do we grow peanuts as the beginning of this? Probably not, but we're probably going to take a, you know, can of, or a jar of peanut butter and a jar of, of uh, jelly and bread. Like, so finding that beginning point and then at the end of it, you know, do you make the sandwich? Do you cut the sandwich into triangles? Do you cut the ends off? Do you put it on a plate? Do you seat it a certain way? Do you serve it to somebody? 
you know, you need to look at that for both sides of this system. Cause you might have a system for the other stuff and a system for the after stuff, but like know what this system is designed to do. That's an excellent point. One of the things that we usually do is write up a tools required list and getting those tools may be somebody else's job. Like you said, a totally different subsystem or process somewhere in there, but in order to begin, you must have those. I love it. All right. So now, now let's go back to number two, our checklist. Number two, our checklist. We, I, I feel like there's a misconception that building a checklist is building a process. And, in, you know, it does get you a substantial uh, step in nothing to a checklist. Okay, great. Like now we're checking off the things that are really going to be done. Um, but the checklist is typically so high level that it is from your own perspective and it normally leaves out details that are going to be important that you inherently know. And we call it tribal knowledge in, uh, in our business, but that tribal knowledge is something that must be added to the checklist in order for somebody to walk in the door day one and successfully do it. A lot of times, sorry. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say a lot of times we use the example of if an alien showed up from Mars and the only thing they knew was English, would they be able to maneuver through what's being written. You phrase it so much better. I was just going to say that's the, a great extra use of new hires is to have them go through the checklist process and see what other questions come up or other issues they have. But I love it from the, uh, the alien perspective. It's very catchy. We call it the gift of novice. A lot of times people feel maybe insecure if they don't know all about something, but it's truly a gift to have somebody come in with fresh eyes and no bias. It's just blank slate and they'll catch things that it's hard to find if you're, if you've been entrenched in the way of doing the thing for too long. The gift of novice. I love it. That's going to be, that's going to be one of the quotes that comes out of this. I've never heard that before, but it is so true. All right. What are we going deeper on a checklist? Uh, no, well, step three is to go deeper on the checklist. Oh, and there we go. Call that MRCA. Um, so that is metrics, responsibilities, connections, and activities. And these are the four points that you need to go through for every single portion of your checklist to make sure that your process is successful. So normally what we would call a a process is, you know, start to finish, you've established one small thing that needs to get done. That is a process. It fits in a subsystem that's housed in a whole system. Um, there isn't a right or wrong around naming those, but you'll hear me use those words interchangeably um, somewhat. So I just want to give the framework process is the smallest portion where somebody is doing a job. And so the checklist typically becomes a process, you know, for instance, how to start your car. Um, and we need to understand the metrics we're tracking um, and include numbers to be very specific. Uh, then we need to know whose responsibility is what portion. Uh, and we typically use a job title, not a name, because it can get confusing if you just put names and you might end up with more than one person in the same job. So you would want it specifically titled that way. Then you have connection points, and this is probably the one that gets lost the most, and that is where do I physically hand off responsibility and who do I hand it to every single time? Um, 
And and you end up with a lot fewer like, well, I did my part and it's sitting right there <laughs> when you when you really have specified what that's supposed to be. And the last one is the activities. So it is the what, why, where component of it. It's that nitty gritty detail that you would want to include in your system builds. So really MRCA, the acronym is going from a checklist to a really robust system. And I love that you included why in there because I, I don't know if it's observation bias for my end or whatnot, but I feel like there's so many more, you know, millennials or whatever the generations afterwards that are interested in the why of all these things to really have that buy-in, to have that, you know, understand that they're working towards something greater than themselves. There's a, yeah, there's a lot of freedom in including a why because it leaves room for innovation. If you understand how things are connected, you understand who the players are, who's responsible, you know how you're measuring success and you understand the breakdown of the pieces, it gives you with the why the ability to innovate without tampering. It lets you innovate in a way that doesn't totally derail what was already outlined. And that's what a lot of millennials, younger folks want to be able to do. How do I improve it? How do I contribute? How do I make a difference here? And it, it gives them some bumpers for that. Yeah. And it's interesting because like in reading um, Checklist Manifesto, so they had like the World Health Organization put together this checklist for surgery to try and limit deaths. And it was like insanely effective. But one of the things that they had to do was limit some of the things on the checklist to make sure it would happen. From our perspective, are you all looking at limiting the scope of the checklist to make sure that each one is doable? Or are there certain things we want to intentionally leave off the checklist? Or how does that play into it? Typically, the checklist has a sub... Um set of information that goes along with it. So here is the task. And I might say, please put 24 apples in the red bucket. Um, but under that, I might have specifics about how big the red bucket is, what kind of apples you're putting in there, how the bucket is labeled, where you're going to find it. And it's just clickable. Like I can take a step back and if I'm learning it for the first time, I'm going to read every detail and probably take an eternity to do it. And that's fine. But if I've done it for 10 years, um, I, I may just run through the checklist and it's totally okay. And Meredith, I love that. I love that ability to kind of like expand on it or, or collapse it and uncollapse it. Like that is so cool. Um, Cause I agree with you. That really does allow it to be beneficial to whatever skills, whatever skill level person is going through it. I think it's really helpful for the why component of things too. I have a really brief example that is kind of fun. Um, so from a machine build, there was a machine that we were working on and somebody said, why don't we just run glue through the lines instead of water? Because what the machine was designed to do was to squirt water into a hole that it had drilled and then throw a dowel in the hole. And, um, it was a pre-glued dowel. So it would just seal itself up. It, you know, the water activated the glue. Fabulous. Everything's done. Well, we didn't put a why in why we were running water through that machine. And the why was it was specced for water. Glue is more viscous. Um, and what we came back to when we, uh, somebody decided, oh, I'm going to Kaizen. So good change. I'm going to make it better. I'm going to put glue in. I'm not going to have these sticky dowels. And we came back to a machine hooked up to a glue bucket that had crusted over 
suctioned itself down and dried the whole line. And now the machine's totally inactive because they were trying to improve it. So if we had just said, hey, we're doing this because it's specifically designed to run water, it can't handle glue. We might have saved ourselves a lot of money, time, heartache, <laughs> production, downtime. So it it really, I think Andy said it, It the intention is very important. Um, and when you want to improve something, you need to understand what the intention was before you just go change it. And from a lawyer perspective, oftentimes you need to do this for an administrative purpose. Like the court system needs it to be in 12 point times New Roman with margins. Or there's like some crazy ethics rule that like you have to file this this way um, or whatnot. And so having some of those things where you're almost like, look, I know this isn't the best way, but we have to do it this way because of this uh, becomes very helpful to keep people on task. Absolutely. So the, the next thing is it seems silly, but after you've gone through MRCA and you've added all this crazy amount of detail that you feel is completely useless sometimes, um, it, the next step is reduce ambiguity. And the reason that we say reduce ambiguity, this is where Andy is going to come in with some stories, is because we can only operate out of our own reference frame. And I cannot tell you the number of times we have said word for word exactly what we meant, and it gone totally the wrong way. Um, and Andy has uh, you know, as she said, a social work background. So she's worked with high functioning um special needs adults. And, and she has some really fun anecdotal stories that just give a really good example of how poorly things can go if you don't really specify what you mean. So Andy, <laughs> kick it over to you. Yeah. So I did, I worked in a residential facility for adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. You think Serge Weber, autism, Down syndrome, Asperger's, so there's a long list. Um, operational definitions got really important because what I meant when I said something and what they interpreted when I said it were not the same. And so we practice life skills like cooking. And one day I said, okay, we're going to make this sandwich. I want you to take your spatula and flatten it. And he picked up the spatula, the man I was working with, laid it down on his counter and pressed it flat. My bad. That's not what we were aiming for. I would <laughs> I say that you got lawyered. That wasn't wrong. That was it wasn't at all. But I was speaking from my reference frame. So the word it was a problematic word to use. I wasn't specific enough. So there was ambiguity about what the intention was and the word I was using twofold. And same guy, different day, extra time. And so we were trying to figure out how to open an envelope. One of those newfangled fancy ones with the perforations around the edges. Okay, my man, you are going to take that envelope, fold it and tear it. And of course, I thought there's a visual aid. It has arrows. There's dotted lines. He fold that sucker right in half and tore it down the middle. Solid. And so again, I was not specific enough. And this happens anytime you try to write a process checklist, you get into the details, you do the MRCA. And by then you're like deep in time investment, probably with this process more than you ever cared to spend. It's really great for team building. If you can get your team all in a room and practice, it's it's a fun time. Like like try and break the system, like try and oh, understand yeah. this differently. Only do what is written on the paper. Um, and I, I have done this with teams in the past and our current team. And one of the things that we did 
was also food, but it, you know, it was poor mustard and I had no mustard. So I was just standing there like pouring imaginary mustard while I was watching the team like <laughs> struggle with me. Cause they're, you know, they're all adults and they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I don't have mustard. So you didn't tell me to get it. And they're all frustrated. They're like, go get the mustard. And I'm like, it doesn't say to do that. <laughs> and so we gave, we gave our team that reference frame. Don't do it unless specified because somebody else won't know where to go get it. And uh, it, it is really a good time. You get a lot of laughs out of it. Yeah. We had, um, I, I want to say this, if it wasn't yesterday, a couple of days ago. Um, so we're driving through North Georgia and my wife looks at my four and a half year old son and says, Hey, if you find a bear, if you see a bear, I'll give you a dollar towards, you know, allowance. And he's like, okay. And he holds up his stuffed teddy bear. And I was like, pay that kid a dollar. Nailed it. You did not specify outside the car. You did not specify real bear. He, uh, he hammered it. So, you know, again, an opportunity to use uh, novices to make sure that you're super clear on it. I love it. Yeah. And, and even if you don't have new hires, you can pull people in from other departments. Do you have somebody who doesn't work in that particular area of law or in our case, our bookkeepers and our tech team? It's real fun to get them together. It's a good time. <laughs> And you usually learn some things about uh, where the information is coming from, what role it's serving up or downstream, and how you can better collaborate collectively. And super smart ad, Andy. I love that. Just taking someone from a different team. All right. Anything else deeper on removing ambiguity? No, I think we hop right into our next step, which is pre-specifications and embedded tests. So my favorite example of this is a pre-specification is a road line and embedded test is rumble strips. So here's where you're supposed to be. And then the the embedded test is, oh, you're not doing it right (laughs) immediately. Um, So really what that is, is you tell me where I'm supposed to be. What are my guardrails? And then have something yell at me when I'm outside of my guardrails so I'm not in danger of screwing this up. That's really all that means. But this is where you start getting a little bit fun. So you've built a system and you start determining, hey, where can I mess this up? And how can I prevent it from being messed? Are we losing you, Meredith, or is it my internet that's cutting out? Andy, Meredith? I'm here. Oh, there you go. Okay. We're losing blue eyes over there. You have a, an example while we're waiting for uh, her to come back in on the, the rumble strip in action? Yeah, there's a ton of them. So one of them, you can think about bowling. Right, you've got the lane that you're supposed to be blowing down. You got the bumpers, and some some of them will have like a light or a buzzer that goes off if you hit them. Also, like the game of operation, you can see what you're supposed to be aiming for, and you can see what you're supposed to touch with your tweezers. But if you go off mark, it's gonna rumble. It's gonna scream at you. Like <laughs> you will know if you did not hit the mark. So that's but, the that's the intention. And in like business, spe- yeah, that's exactly yeah, what I was gonna in- ask. In business, you can have an example of websites are great for this. So a pre-specification would be, here's all the forms you've got to fill out. And the embedded test is that error message that pops up. You did not complete this field. Here's a red mark, (laughs) right? It's, and it can be built a million different ways, but it's an alert or some kind of notification or um, feedback that you are missing where we're intending for us to go together. 
So it's not just me remembering what my process is. It's me building in those guardrails to keep me ushered down the appropriate path. And I love the, I love the ability of just like a required field, not being filled out, catching so many of these things, as opposed to like the automation doesn't fire. If it's not on this, the email doesn't go to this person. If their email address isn't in there, like whatever that's going to be catching it there is great. Yep. And this, you can get really into the minutiae. Like if you're putting a date, instead of having a text field, have a date box. And then we start to get into user experience and working with tech team to do those kinds of things. But yeah. I love it. All right, Meredith, are you uh, back with us? I switched Wi-Fi so I could be back. (laughs) All right, there we go. Perfect. So after you've gotten your pre-specifications and embedded tests, that's really um, kind of your mistake-proofing portion um, everywhere that you can. And like Andy said, that can be a rabbit hole. You could do that for all of eternity. But I would highly recommend also going ahead and doing your value add versus non-value add. Um, So value added means, and and this can get a little fuzzy, um, but value added means that the customer is willing to pay for it. And non-value add means the customer is not willing to pay for it. Um, So, and then we have another category that we could call non-value added, but necessary. And we actually had um, a lawyer getting a disagreement with us about this. So you'll have to take it at face value and use your own interpretation. But uh, (laughs) essentially what I'm looking for when I specify what these are is simply if the customer is not willing to pay for it, can I remove it from the process? Can I automate it? Can I improve it? For instance, if somebody is sitting at a front desk in an office and they have to walk to a printer on the other side of the office 37 times a day, can we get them a printer for 50 bucks and set it on their desk and save them 37 minutes per day for all of the rest of eternity? So they're not going back and forth, back and forth. And then they have that time to recoup for productivity. Um, so we're looking at small individual things. And there are eight forms of waste that you can look at. Um, and I'm not going to dive into that because I feel like it's a little more complexity, but you can Google it. Just the eight forms of waste to help you look at what is actually non-value added in your process. So Andy and I, the way we do that is we start putting things in a process flow at this point. So we've gone from just instructions to a process flow. And if it is value add, it goes straight in a line going up and down. Again, you can choose to go in a different direction, but we go straight up and down and it's step one, step two, step three, step four, the way you would read something. If it is non-value added, we make it go off this way. So we have a very clear indication of what we are trying to omit from the process if we possibly can. But we do have that category of non-value added but necessary. For instance, um, you are in a law firm. In order to work as a lawyer in a law firm, you must have a law degree. Your client is probably not willing to pay for the entirety of your law degree, but you absolutely must have one to be their lawyer period. So they're going to have to pay more money for your time because you went through the effort of getting that law degree. So technically that is non-value added, but necessary in the process. So it is catered into the price. Um, Non-value added items typically end up catered into the price by accident or not catered into the price and hurting your bottom line. So 
that's why we want to omit them. We can either make you more profitable from where you are today or get you to profitability if you're omitting them from your processes. Um, and it is a terrible exercise and I would recommend doing it with everyone. It'll take longer, but you'll identify things that you didn't see as waste in a way that you cannot possibly imagine. So somebody go, ooh, I don't like that step or ooh, we could skip over that. Ooh, I bet I could write a program for that. And then somebody's gonna go, why do we even do this at all? Could we just not do this? <laughs> and you'll get all those different levels and you'll have to go back and forth and it's frustrating but it really does make a huge difference to the bottom line of the business. So can I, I'm going to throw out an example. Let me know if I'm on the right path. So like one of the things from a PI perspective, we have to send certain things certified mail to make sure they were actually sent. Even if we know the other side's never going to respond, that they're going to default on it, whatever it is, would that be something that's not a value add? Cause like we have to do that process, but it actually costs money that we are in theory wasting, except the court requires us to do it from the standpoint of being able to get a default judgment. Yes, absolutely. That's a great gotcha. example. Uh, your customer doesn't want to pay for that, but they have to. It's a requirement. Trust me, customer. Me neither. I wish. <laughs> and it's not just paying for it. It's the time spent filling it out. And it's the waiting 20 or 30 days, depending upon your state. And then it's a motion you're filing. I mean, there's so much that goes into it, but it's one of those, uh, you know, legal dot the eyes. It's one of those legal checklists that makes no actual sense, but was created for some reason. So I have to add two things here. One is for the benefit of my mother. Love you, mom. Um, Meredith and I have settled on this working definition of value add, non-value add based on her training and our mutual understanding. I will say it's slightly different utilization of the words value add, non-value add than Deming. So for my Deming truest out there, don't, you know, don't shoot me. Um, <laughs> so that's that piece. And from a bookkeeping component, when we're looking at value add and non-value add or value add and non-value add, but necessary, people will see this in their numbers in terms of direct cost of goods and indirect business expenses. So direct labor, indirect labor. And when you work with an effective bookkeeper, they'll be able to break some of that out for you. So you can see at least the starting point, how much money am I spending in each of these areas? And it doesn't, it doesn't tell you all the answers, but it starts to paint an initial picture that you can then dig into. So is, is the there, <laughs> no, 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 that was great. Cause along those lines, is there a normal amount of waste from the, you know, administrative and ethical things from a law firm? It depends, like you said, on industry. So law firms are, are unique to themselves. And it also depends on what niche inside of law. So you have a trial lawyer, that's a whole different situation than somebody who's mostly doing trademark applications, like very world's different. So I, I can't give an exact answer, um, but we're happy to work with people. If they have questions about a process, we'd love to take a look and see how we can help. What about something like filing fees or court costs? Would that be something that would fall in here? Does your customer like paying for that? No, no. Who wants to spend like in Florida? It's like 400 and almost $500. Is it, to open up is it necessary? But yeah, I mean, you don't, you can't sue somebody. You got to have the case number. Non-value added, but necessary based on the framework. Okay. We yeah. Got it. Yeah. Very interesting. So that would be, so from a law firm perspective, I, I see that being such an interesting number because you have some case costs that are optional, some case costs mm -hmm. that are done to increase the value of the case and some case costs that cost money, but have to happen and mm -hmm. aren't optional. And then you may be able to look at some of the, some of those costs differently from what you're saying. Mm -hmm. 
And it's a, you know, Meredith and I have come to this explanation based on our experience with the framework and what served us. There are no rules. Take what we're explaining and apply it to your business in the way that it serves you, right? Borrow, borrow what you like, make it fit. Cause we don't know each person's business structure from the get-go. It's slightly different. And so the operational definitions might need to flex a little bit. Um, yeah. So got to yes, individualize it. All of us lawyers are special unicorns, even though, even though we're not, sorry to break everybody's <laughs> bubble. Right, anything else before we go to the next one? No. Uh, last and final is just like you mentioned to Kaizen. Kaizen is Japanese for good change, uh, quite literally. And I think that this is the fall off point. Most people are like, oh, we're through all that. Okay, we're done. But you know, systems and processes are living documents always. And if you're not keeping them updated, making sure you're following them and really implementing it the same way you would a core value. Like when something happens, you go back to the system and look at it and say, hey, did we follow this? Um, because if we didn't, we need to figure out how we can make it more user-friendly to make sure it is always followed. And if we didn't follow it, has something changed externally that needs that makes our internal process need to change and um so that kaizen there's there's two different forms of process improvement and one is uh you are fixing problems and the other one is you don't have any problems so we we call it the two types of problems and it's really that if you start to stagnate, if everything in your business is beautiful, what can you make better? What can you make more efficient? And if everything is not beautiful, what is your lowest hanging fruit to start working on and improving? And again, essentially just improving your bottom line. What do you do uh, next? And you create a list. And then when you're done with that list, I guarantee you're going to have more things to work on. So that is the final step. And we call it true north. You want to keep Kaizanding until you get to true north. It's interesting. There's a, there's a company called Lawyerist that does their small firm scorecard. And in essence, it's just like on a scale of one to 10 or one to five, I think it's one to 10. Um, how happy are you with this part of your firm? And it's completely subjective. And I've had so many people rag on it. And I was like, no, no, no. Because then when you go exactly what we're talking about, when you don't have problems, you go back to the list and you're like, oh, these are the things that are fours. Let me work on those before I amend the things that are sevens and eights. And then when you do the process again, your fours become eights and then you find something else that you're not as happy with. And it really gives you that opportunity to, to focus, to really have a priority as you move through these things. Absolutely. The, the fun thing for me with the good change process is at some point it stops being about just how to do business well. And it starts to transition into how do we do business in a way that feels good for the people involved. And that's like my happy place. I am the cheerleader fairy duster of all time. Like I just want people to feel happy and fulfilled and confident. And that's, that's my favorite bit is when we get past the point of how do we make good money and serve people well to how do we do that at an X factor of 15, like next level customer service for our vendors, our team members, our clients, the owners, all of it, like anywhere we can touch and, and elevate, it just makes me really happy. So that's, well, that's the vision. If you do all of this long enough, that's the end point for me, people like me. Yeah, but there, yes, yes. And there's no study that's going to tell the opposite, right? Like 
there's nothing that says your miserable employees are more efficient or more effective. It's not, you know, they take more sick time. They leave a lot sooner. They don't, you know, they don't provide the same soft skills to the client. Like you're, you know, you're making the happiness kind of sound frou-frou, but ultimately that is the foundation of a successful business is people enjoying working for the business or at the business or with the business or, you know, whatever. Absolutely. There's, so, there's many, many episodes of podcasts, some of which we've recorded, some of yet we've yet to, that speak to the way management can support their team well. And this really, these seven pieces were just a crash course in the beginning of that. So yeah, it's, it's giving leadership and owners, operators, the leaders of a firm, the ability to work towards that and to take care of their people well. Well, and it's, I love, like, there's the people that have the pushback on, a, you know, a consistent process from like, your employees are going to feel stifled. And I'm always like, no, they're going to know that there's a way for you to know if they're doing a good job, as opposed to just being like, wing all your work, have no metrics, and hopefully things get done. Both of us did the finger. We're like, but <laughs> you go ahead. It, so I show an example when we do a presentation on, um, systems and processes where we go through a bunch of memes of the you had one job where people just failed miserably everybody's seen that you know it's a can of corns that has peas in it like it's just how did we end up here and we go through a set of bad and and ambiguous instructions and everybody laughs but then we show a slide and it says you know most people have this this um, ideology that systems equal no creativity and it's looking at the underside of somebody's sink where they just had their plumbing redone and they did it with green piping and they stuck like a little Bowser and a little Mario in there. And it, you know, it just looks so funny and everybody gets a good giggle out of it, but he followed his process exactly. And it's, and it's what Andy just spoke about. Now we have the ability to put a little sparkle on it. You can use your creativity, not in how do I make this work and happen? It's how do I make it fun? How do I make it next level? How do I, uh, give someone the best gift they've had today um, by surprising them with little things that are personalized to them. And that's where that creativity gets to be put back into the system. It's not the figure it out. It's the make it the best in the world. Yeah. Meredith, you just gave me so much more work. Now I got to go home and paint all my pipes and find the little <laughs> Mario figurines for them. It sounds like there's a plumber out there that could do that for you. <laughs> we but, have found you gotta find him. Yeah, but like it's you're right. You're right. I'm I'm underselling the creative aspect, but I'm I don't disagree with that part. I just meant it more from the standpoint of like it's amazing to me these companies that just expect their employees to do the right thing every time in the right order on the right stuff with no guidance, with no expectation, with no training, and then you're always like I hire the worst people and you're like no, you have no you have the worst system or you have no system. I have something very offensive to say to that. Uh, you don't hire the worst people. You are the worst people. <laughs> Fair. And, and look, as a, uh, I'm going on, what am I? I just passed seven years as a firm owner. Um, like I was that person and I probably still am that person. Like, that's the terrible part. Like there's probably a new position I'm going to hire and I'm still not going to have the right stuff and structured in place. But at least now I'm like more aware of the fact that you need you need the guardrails for people, but you need, you need the guidance for them to know that they're doing their job well. I, I would like to throw in on that. 
I was also that person. That's why I say it so harshly. And people who have that mindset need to hear it in a very harsh method for it to actually sink in. I, I was people very much. It was, you know, I was a harsh boss that was difficult to deal with. And I couldn't understand for the life of me why you couldn't do it after I told you one time. And it was really difficult. And until somebody threw me into, you have to learn how to build systems that I was, well, you didn't throw me into it, Andy, you're raising your hand, but you know, it, it was that moment where I was like, oh my God, this is everything I needed in my entire life. So I went from being like disorganized, everything in my head was how I operated. And I told people one time to, I now had a methodology for like my home and my personal organization and my work organization. I wrote systems for self. I organized how I operated with employees. And I also was able to use my own creativity in ways that were very different because I could then hand things off that I didn't want to do anymore. And it was a huge shift. So for those of you who just got offended, I mean that the best way possible. <laughs> uh, and very I hope good this company. Happens. Yeah. No, but to, be, to, to simplify this to its truly end, you know, nth degree or whatever, if you have the, if you have systems that create your work profitably, right? Like you can handle a case to be profitable based upon the systems. And then you find the people to properly execute the systems. You, you're successful. You're profitable. You've got money. You've got an actual business. Like it's just those two things. And I think we oftentimes think that the people are what we need first, but like, unless that person's really going to be a system builder, you need the system first to make sure the person can be effective. We've seen it as a scaffolding. We build some system and then we have some people and then they learn the system and then they build a little more and then we can build a little more and bring in more people who learn a little more. And then we start to develop this culture of excellence. And there's a really fundamental shift that happens when you put something on paper. It stops being about me telling you what you need to do and starts being me shoulder to shoulder with you, looking at what we're doing, saying, how do we improve this together? So we have a great sticky note example of how you would map all of this out. Everyone gets a marker. Everyone gets a sticky note. Y'all draw it out together. No one's excluded. No one is ultimately in charge of it from the level of contributing the owner ends up making the value judgment or the leader. Um, but it starts to give a framework for how to build collaboration in your team rather than conflict, which is very, it. very frequent in businesses. It's like, well, you are the have and I am the have not, and I'm going to grumble and do my work and you're going to dictate to me and I'm going to end up being a peon and nobody feels good about anything. And it, it shifts all of that and puts it all on its head. How do I best serve my people who best serve my clients? Well, and, yeah. and even if, and even if you're sitting there thinking like my office doesn't have that level of conflict, I go back to, I want to say it was four or five years ago. I was listening to Ryan McKean speak. Um, and he said this thing where like looking into his Tetra or Tranual or policies procedures that like a thing had been viewed 5,000 times. He's like, that was 5,000 questions that got answered one directionally, you know? So the conflict might just be interrupting somebody else to get the, you know, hive brain um, out of their head. Um, and Ryan McKean just had a hundred million dollar verdict, the largest in Connecticut. So like, I think he fucking knows at least somewhat of what he's talking about. Yeah. Um, and I mean that in all credits, Ryan, as a, as a joke, he's a very smart dude. Uh, but it was just so interesting because like, even if we're not talking about like a true one-on-one -on -one conflict, we're talking about like the time suck here, the question there, the 
why aren't you responding to my emails faster so I can learn this from you or whatever. And it's not just that interpersonal conflict, it's that internal conflict. Are all Mm. of the people on your team living the biggest, boldest, most impactful life that they could be? Whatever it is that they want for themselves, are they fully fulfilled, fully expressed, fully authentic? Because if they're not, there is conflict. They're just not telling you. Right. I love it. And I think a good way that this, a good example of the way this shows up, at least for us, is more often than not, if we get someone who has been in the industry for a while and has a lot of expertise, and then we say, okay, we're going to train you in systems and processes. This is how we operate. They're like, are you going to fire me like already? Why do you need to know what I'm doing? Why does somebody have to show up on my call and watch what I'm doing? Are they checking in to make sure I'm doing it right? And it's like, no, no, we want you to be able to take a vacation. We want to collaborate. So we're getting best practices out of things. But that initial conflict of like, get out of my space. I know what I'm doing is common, even for us as owners. Like when I'm, I'm doing a thing and I have a team member come in and do an Ono circle, which is standing there silently watching someone with no questions and no conversation for 30 minutes. It's the most painful thing you can do as an adult, because instantly it's like, why are you doing that? What is that for? Where'd you get that from? You know, you just, you get inquisitive, but we make people in total silence watch. And when somebody is watching me, I'm like, is it more torturous for the watcher or the one being watched? And I think that, yes. uh, oh, the answer yeah. is yes. <laughs> everyone involved. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. Well, and it, I mean, look, there's a point in time where the person who is concerned about the system might not be the right fit but that's way down the line from the point in time where not having a system will let you know if anybody's the right fit anyway, because there's no consistency. Right. Yeah. And the added bonus of building your systems is you're documenting the value of your business, right? So if you want to retire someday or make an exit or switch fields or move to a different state, leave your practice, like whatever, any, any number of things, it makes it a whole lot easier to evaluate and evaluate that company if it is on paper, because you have now built something that's an asset for the company that stays behind. So you've empowered your people, you freed up your time, you've created collaboration on your team, and there's a whole lot of financial benefit that you leave behind by doing all of that. Well, and that's one of the things, like there's a lot of law firms that are trying to figure out what other streams of revenue they have. Um, I think that's one of them. And obviously you need to balance what Andy said. Like if you're, if you're selling your system and process now for a thousand dollars a piece, you're not going to be able to sell your firm for $500,000 more because your systems and processes. So balance those things. But there is a really interesting way to turn this into an informational product, I guess, for, for lack of better terminology. Yeah. Very good. All right. So as we get towards the end, anything else you want to make sure we cover? before we dive into our uh, next episode, our last episode and our uh, takeaway? I think the the one thing I would like to add is that um, as you include your people in your system, watching your people become the biggest advocates of the system is probably the most fun thing you get to do. But the reason I hit on that so hard so early is because 
they need to feel like they're a huge part and we never weaponize our system against people. It is always that they get in the fight with us and we are fighting against bad systemic outcomes, not bad people. And uh, it gives you a lot of clarity on who you keep on your team and who you don't because the unforgivable sin is not showing up or breaking the law, not, not doing your job well. You have visibility to all of it. Um, and if somebody has done their job well for 20 years and suddenly isn't doing their job well and that visibility pops up, I get to go, hey, what's going on? Like, this is not like you. Instead of being like, you're out of here, you've been you're not doing anything for a month. Um, and that that pivotal shift for a business is so much fun to be a part of. Yeah. Well, and I love, I think it's Donald Miller. If not, I'm giving him the credit. Um, who talks about like naming this stuff, right? Like we've got the, we've got the legalese way we've got the, you know, so-and-so golden rules, something. So you get that like cool team mentality to the buy-in of these things. Like, look, we do it this, we do it our way. We do it our, you know, we follow our process. We follow our system, like whatever you're going to call it um, to give people that extra level of buy-in really like. So All right. Oops, Meredith, sorry. Yeah. I was just going to say Meredith took my, <laughs> my talking point that I had the same thing. So we both were very aligned on that. So I will give um, one other piece of input, which is system and process development gets a lot easier when you know, like Meredith was saying, what the true North is. So if you have not already really anchored in what the intention of your business is, now is a great time to do that. What is your aim? What is your intention? I could talk to death about how one would do that, but truly like what problem are you trying to solve? Who are you trying to help? What is the, the true North of the direction you are steering? Because you can make a lot of value judgments a lot easier as you're building your processes. If you have that in place. Well, and a hundred thousand dollar firm versus a million versus a $10 million firm are going to do things differently. And a personal injury firm versus a traffic firm versus family law firm are going to do things differently. And a firm that focuses on, you know, younger, uh, younger clientele versus older clientele will do things differently. So that true North really helps you from a marketing perspective, but also from a system perspective, you yeah, know, having so your, your 80 year old clients log in on a client portal on their phones may not be the right way to sign a, you know, estate or, or trust or will or whatever you want to call it. Right. So ours is to own and operate a model business solutions company that transforms thinking and improves lives. So is it model? Is it business solutions? Are we transforming thinking? Are we improving lives? If it's not doing at least some of those things, it is not the right thing for us. I love it. All right. And so for anybody who's been watching for, we're going to be, I think we went over an hour. If not, we were close. Um, who remembers nothing here, but knows that they need more information from you, wants to follow the podcast, wants to get more information, wants to hire y'all to help them through the systems, what's the best way for them to get in touch with, you know, either or both of you? Our website is a great place to get a hold of us. It's just www.untied.work, W-O-R-K. So that's, that's a great place to get a hold of us. And there's a comment form that people can reach out. Um, and if they're looking to engage services, there's also a work with us form. Awesome. Thank yeah. you all so much for being here to both, uh, both of our guests, Andy and Meredith, as well as everybody who took the time to watch and listen. We'll see you back at our next episode, which will be on at, cool. With that, see you all next week. Thank you so much.